0: Um, welcome, welcome everybody, to um, this meeting of the first, I think, in... No, it's not the first in May, so I can't, can't think of anything unique to say about it. The, the unique thing this time is that we have with us, Gary Watson, Professor of Philosophy at University of Southern California. And Gary is going to give us a paper for which you should have a two-page 2, um, two page handout. He's going to give a paper on psychopathy, and prudential deficits. Thank you. Thank you. Well, thanks to the uh, society for the invitation. I'm happy to be here. Uh, This is a rather uh, odd subject in a a certain way. I mean, eclectic and very much uh, armchair uh, philosophy on something that's... uh, empirically laden, so uh, I'm a bit um, uh, nervous about the uh, uh, the relation of my arguments to uh, reality, but um, nonetheless uh, I've always been struck by, uh, since I started thinking about psychopathy, which I started to do because of my interest in the, the usual in, in philosophical interest in uh, the uh, moral, uh, I'll call them moral deficits of the, of the, of the psychopath, um, that um, which has raised questions about whether, uh, if it really is a moral incapacity, whether a psychopath can be um, morally responsible. And we're uh, legally responsible, and that has gained a, l- a lot of attention among philosophers. Am I, au- I want to make sure I'm audible to uh, okay. uh, That has gained a lot of attention. but um, my concern here is, is um, not with responsibility, but with uh, another feature of the clinical f- profile, namely, uh, what appears to be a peculiarly uh, limited regard on the psychopath's part uh, for themselves, or for himself, or herself. Um, And what interests me is the question of how these deficits, the moral deficit and the prudential deficit, uh, can be conceived to be related. Um, Now I begin with a story just to give you a sense, maybe you don't need it, Uh, uh, The psychopathic uh, kind of character, if I can put it that way. Um, This is a a story by McCord and McCord, who uh, uh, long ago, began, in the 60s, began studying um, psychopathy. And they give a a report about uh, one Howard Deaver. These names are usually fictitious. Uh, I mean, made-up names. The characters are real, but uh, the patients are real. But... Um, Now, so Deaver uh, spent his uh, youth uh, on the streets of New York with petty crimes and um, um, hustling and 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 thefts, and uh, was eventually uh, when he was old enough, he was conscripted into the U.S. Army. This is during the Second World War, and he was uh, a wall something fourteen times or something like that, and. Uh, he was thrown into the brig uh, but people thought there was something wrong with him so he was thrown into the hospital uh, but he was in and out and he was eventually shipped by the U.S. Army to England (laughs) uh, where he continued his uh, mischief and during this time he married an English woman then he was injured during a a, a German bombing attack and and then given uh, on that basis a medical discharge whereupon he immediately abandoned his his wife and then a newborn child to return to the US. She tracked him down some uh, months later and in New York City, they moved in together for about a week. And then according to the McCords uh, report, um, a week later he left for Florida without notifying his wife. And according to Deaver, I met a guy in a bar he said he wanted to pull some jobs in Florida. Would I go along? And I said, okay, but I forgot to tell my wife. Um, she didn't know where I was, but she, she took me back when I came home. It wasn't that I didn't like her. We got along okay. I just had other things to do. By the time he was 35, Deaver faced 15 count indictment for burglary, forgery, imper- impersonation in, in Massachusetts, was wanted for similar crimes in other states. Um, and looking back, he remarked, Hell, I didn't need the money. I just get an idea. He was about 35 uh, at this point and uh, been in, in prison for a while. I just get an idea and I'd go out and do it. Maybe I hurt somebody doing it, but I've had fun. I, I should say that because of the, the countering the popular image of the psychopath as a, a serial killer, Deaver. Uh, probably, uh, I mean, I don't know the full details, but probably engaged in very little violence. It's obvious, uh, and so it's 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 not unusual for psychopaths not to be particularly violent. Uh, um, although, of course, some when they are, some are are spectacularly so. But, but this sort of thoughtless uh, misbehavior causes enormous grief. But what makes psychopaths so chilling, uh, in contrast, to other antisocial types, is their Blank incomprehension of the moral responses which their inconsiderate and sometimes malicious behavior elicits. They'll often try to talk the talk, but for the most part fairly lamely, and uh, in any case with very little insight into why people bother with what we call morality. This uh, trait, which is sometimes called by the psychologists egocentricity, strikes many observers as pathological rather than uh, uh, a moral fault because its possessors seem incapable of seeing and taking seriously the reasons that uh, we take ourselves to have for attending to one another's liberty and and and, and well, well-being. Now, um, the root of this moral deficit is subject to much research and controversy, and here I'll just uh, uh, stipulate a, the leading view and describe it. Uh, one person who advances this is, is James Blair and colleagues. The leading view is that uh, psycho- psychopathy manifests emotional learning deficits having to do with some uh, abnormal internal, with, with the, de- sorry, deficits having to do with uh, internalization of interpersonal norms, deficits rooted in uh, certain kinds of brain disorder. Uh, Blair thinks amygdala abnormalities And it's crucial, in his view, to distinguish between psychopathy and the uh, category of antisocial personality disorder with which it's sometimes conflated. Um, um, And Blair says the advantage of the concept of psychopathy over the the, um, DSM-IV classifications like the antisocial personality disorder is that it identifies a population who share a common etiology a dysfunction-specific form of emotional processing. Um, so, on on the handout, I, I mean, I'll refer here and now and then to, to various features. I've I put supplied you with the uh, kind of chief clinical criteria of psychopathy by Cleckley, and uh, who began working on the subject in the '40s, and uh, Robert Hare, a Canadian psychologist who. Uh, has developed an influential diagnostic checklist. and uh, But I saying you might take a look at that as we go along. Uh, but right alongside so-called ego- egocentricity or self-centeredness in the psychopathic profile sits a striking deficiency in what I call prudential concern. This trait figures prominently in the most influential clinical descriptions those of Cleckley and Hare. So psychopathy characteristic involves poor judgment and failure to learn by experience, failure to follow any life plan, lack of remorse or shame, as Cleckley puts it. Hare's checklist includes lack of realistic long-term goals, failure to accept responsibility for one's actions, impulsivity, poor behavior controls, and lack of remorse or guilt. Psychopaths are apt to get themselves into easily foreseen and avoidable trouble, and are notoriously inconstant in their stated plans and projects. And yet these prudential misadventures, and this, this is a, really seems important to my theme, are no more occasions for genuine regret or self-rebuke uh, than are their moral failings. In this respect, uh, I want to say along with many others, they're as careless of themselves as they are of other people. An initially plausible hypothesis is is that the co-occurrence of these moral and prudential deficits in psychopathy is no accident, just to put it vaguely, that there's some kind of uh, a law-like connection between them. Um, We call that the linkage thesis. The main question uh, of this lecture is how such a linkage might be explained or understood. The thesis requires clarification, and and indeed it requires defense. Not everyone accepts it. Um, for one thing, it might be thought, this is a natural uh, thought that some people persist in, that uh, the trouble psychopaths create for themselves can be attributed to a special taste for excitement or risk-taking, uh, rather than to prudential deficiencies. As Deaver says, it was just a lot of fun, this life of crime. Um, so in these cases in which the risk is precisely what is sought, then the absence of self-criticism makes sense. I mean, it doesn't display a, a, absence of, uh, a particular absence of um, prudential concern, you might think. Um, the, one woman whom Robert Hare diagnosed as psychopathic reported to him that what she found most exciting was, walking, quote, walking through airports with drugs. Christ, what a high. And the high, I think, comes from not the drugs, but the uh, the attempt to get them through. These thrill-seekers might be likened to extreme sports enthusiasts who rate rate risk-taking differently than most of us. Um, A telling point, however, is to me, is that the risk-taking of such adrenaline junkies and those devoted to uh, doing whatever feels good need not be either that impulsive or undisciplined in the way at issue here, nor, importantly, need these adventurers lack self-critical reactions to the mistakes they make. They may, in fact, chide themselves for timidity or loss of nerve or negligence. Such reactions, however, are outside the repertoire of psychopaths. And further, psychopaths uh, prudential failings show up even when nothing especially thrilling or tempting is in the offing. Uh, Cleckley elaborates on this point in his description of his patient, Tom. I think I I have this quote on the handout. Who resented and seemed eager to avoid punishment, but no modification in his behavior resulted from it. He didn't seem wild or particularly impulsive, a victim of high temper or uncontrollable drives. There was nothing to indicate that he was lured by strong temptations, lured by definite plans for high adventure and exciting revolts. So there's reason to think it's not just a, as it were, a, uh, a, a, a an exa- extreme example of an adventurous lifestyle, so to speak. But let me call attention to some grounds for uh, skepticism about the linkage thesis. There's actually there's at least three grounds. I'm not going to spend uh, a lot of time on these um, because in the end I want to assume that the linkage thesis is true without being able to Answer all of these uh, worries, but one worry is, is that the correlation is, is is spurious because, after all, it's, it's just an artifact of the uh, of the methodology by which the psychopaths are studied. They're studied mostly they're institutionalized psychopaths, uh characters who, um, you know, by the nature of, of things, have gotten themselves into trouble, and so we, we don't know about. Uh, it, it may be these are the imprudent ones, right? Or the uh, careless ones, or the reckless ones. So um, for all that, that, that shows it doesn't, uh, there may be lots of uh, successful psychop- 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 uh, um, psychopaths. And uh, many people, or some people think there, there are some. Indeed, it is a matter of, a matter of uh, experience. Um, so that's the first problem, that the high incidence of prudentially impaired psychopaths in the prison population doesn't tell us much about I- the incidence in general. Now, however they, how they determine these things, it's thought to be about uh, 1% of the population worldwide is thought to be uh, clinically psychopathic. Uh, and uh, maybe 20-30% uh, of, of the criminal population is thought to be uh, psychopathic. Um, now, the clinical profile uh, does indeed imply a strong likelihood that psychopaths will run, af- run afoul of the law, but there appears to be su- appear to be successful, uh, uh, so-called, uh, in some sense, uh, successful in remaining out of <laughs> the clutches of the law, successful or uh, non-criminal, or as Robert Hare prefers to say, subcriminal, Psychopaths, he says, subcriminal because they're always on the edge of uh, getting into trouble. Uh, here's a quote. There's a quote from uh, here. I believe it's on the handout that many psychopaths never go to prison or any other facility. They appear to function reasonably well. Lawyers, doctors, academics, mercenaries, police officers, cult leaders, military, <laughs> a well-functioning cult leader, uh, military personnel, business people, writers, artists, entertainers, and so forth, without breaking the law or at least without being caught and convicted. These individuals are every bit as egocentric, callous, manipulative as the average criminal psychopath. So does the apparent uh, existence of successful psychopaths tell against the linkage of, of moral and prudential deficits as a general thesis? Well, maybe it does. Um, the, the, but uh, I think there uh, is, is reason to think that it's an open question. Um, in nature of the case, it's, it's harder to study um, the um, ones who have not or not in the clutches of or uh, institutionalized uh, by authorities. But um, according to what I've read, anyway, um, two main differences are said to distinguish this population from the prison population, insofar as this population has been studied. And again, it's hard to do sometimes. But first, uh, according to some uh, writers, the successful psychopaths report a higher level of of education um, and intelligence and effective social skills. And secondly, the successful psychopaths reported lower frequency of convictions. Although, I underscore this, they do not report, report a lower frequency of arrest. So this suggests uh, that factors other than caution keep them uh, out of the clutches of the authorities. And the, so, the, the, so the, the the explanation of whatever uh, of the sub, the existence of uh, so-called successful psychopaths would be that um, not that they're they're prudentially uh, robust or, or competent, but that uh, a confluence of other factors social economic position um, um, social skills um, uh, permit them to uh, um, get away with uh, what they want with relative impunity so in other words they manage to stay at, lo- at large despite prudential shortcomings um, still you might think it's doubtful that anyone could become a, a, a a doctor, or a, uh, or a lawyer, or another disciplined uh, uh, pro- uh, professional, uh, with if if they he or she were so very impulsive as the psychopath, and inconstant as the psychopath is, is depicted to be, it does require a dedication, and a planfulness that seems to be odds at, at odds with the characteristics. Um, but note too, I mean that. It, it just that it flat out goes against the idea that Hare himself emphasized that uh, psychopaths are easily bored it, he's, he says you're not likely to find them engaged in activities that are dull repetitive or that require intense concentration over large long periods so there's a there's tension I think in, in Hare's own, own own thought about this so this objection brings out though an important distinction that may uh, may uh, uh, keep the uh, linkage thesis uh, alive. A distinction between uh, prudential guidance and the persistence of planning and goals. For persistence might result uh, from a fortuitous absence of competing distractions. Um, The endurance and consistency of someone's endeavors may well depend on how continuously the individual's present aims and activities are rewarded. For instance, an individual might find a steady source of enjoyment in winning chess contests or fixing automobiles or in competitive sports or in uh, 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 police or military activities. Uh, So the thought is that a regular stream of stimulating activities in the nature of their profession might sustain him or her through some otherwise rigorous programs. So, so that's a a, uh, a way of understanding the possibility of successful psychopaths. Now there's a final source of doubt about which I, I, I just don't know what to say because it's just beyond my expertise but there are I should say there are theorists who um, who who challenge Hare's two factor model and uh, um, therefore, the, they challenge the linkage thesis. Their claim, as I understand it, is that what's measured by Hare's checklist is in fact a union of deficits with distinct eti- etiologies. So the idea is that impulsivity, tendency to boredom, and so on, listed under factor two in the Hare checklist, um, are. Um, uh, come apart from disorders identified under factor one, grandiose sense of worth, absence of guilt and remorse. And therefore, you'd, pre- you'd predict that when they come apart, they're, they're, what you have is exactly uh, uh, prudence, uh, or what I'm calling prudential uh, uh, capacities, uh, mm-hmm. independently of the rest of the psychopathic uh, package. Well, despite these reservations, I'm going to, uh, which I take seriously, but I'm gonna proceed for the rest of the talk on the assumption that the linkage thesis is at least still empirically alive, that as far as we know, what success and persistence we do find in psychopaths can be explained in the ways that are consistent with lack of uh, what I'm calling uh, prudential guidance or the capacity to manage one's life Besides, the interest in the type of agent that I'm here supposing the psychopath to be seems to me not entirely hostage to the empirical question. We could think of the pro- project, perhaps, um, along the lines that uh, Michael Bratton sometimes suggests when he's talking about his enterprise of uh, creature construction, an idea uh, he gets from Paul Grice. Um, um, Except with a perverse twist, instead of asking, "This is the uh, Bratman's question: What can you add to simpler agents, incrementally, to get the kind of creatures that we think we we ourselves are?" and say, "What's missing? In this other, and what do you have to add?" and then this is creature construction. Um, this is kind of uh, reverse engineering. We ask, "What we could we would have to ha- have to destroy or disturb in creatures such as us to get disordered agents of the kind sy- psychopaths are alleged to be?" You might call this creature corruption or deconstruction. Um, so we're, we're not to imagine uh, the changes in terms of the agent's hardware, but in terms of the moral, the, 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 their psych- moral philosophical psychology or refinements thereof by which we understand ourselves. The thoughts is that we can learn from this exercise even if it turns out that the linkage thesis is, is not strictly, is not uh, true of actual creatures. Now, the idea that uh, moral and prudential concerns are bound up with one another is not unfamiliar in philosophy. And we find in philosophical moral psychology and current theory of agency, a cluster of ideas that it's um, um, tempting to uh, use to capture what's amiss with psychopathic agency, assuming the linkage thesis. I mean, a lot of things come to mind. The psychopaths are deficient as valuing agents or as planning agents or as caring agents. They're wantons in Frankfurt's sense, uh, rational wantons, or uh, they're, they're incapable of achieving practical identities. Uh, I'll touch on some of these ideas below, and these idioms are by no means equivalent, and uh, nor are they entirely rivals. I have my favorites, but uh, in what falls, I, I don't intend to put too fine a point on it, for the ideas converge roughly on a, a generic explanation of the linkage thesis, namely that the common ground of the prudential and moral failures uh, of psychopaths is the incapacity for reflective normative orientation uh, of a kind that functioned as a, as a, a corrective, uh, a standard of correction for um, one's uh, uh, motivational uh, impulses. Now, this is not a surprising conclusion, and I state it very generically, but it needs needs working out. Consider Cleckley's patient Chester. Here's a, a quote: "Whatever strange goals or pseudo goals there may be to prompt and shape." his, Chester's reaction as a member of the community, these two failed to motivate him sufficiently, failed to induce decisions and acts that would give him the freedom to pursue them. It has been demonstrated to Chester repeated, repeatedly that his characteristic acts put him in a situation of confinement he finds particularly disagreeable, but this doesn't produce the slightest modification of his behavior. Now, as Cleckley observes, it's tempting to interpret the behavior of Chester and his ilk as, this is a quote from uh, Cleckley, as a rebellious manifestation of symbolic protest against customs, principles, people, and institutions that he will not accept um, a rebel uh, with or without a cause. But Cleckley uh, regards these interpretations as implausible in his uh, experience. He says, if loitering, th- Theft, swindling, disgracing himself, running up debts, social sabotage in general are his goals. The pursuit of these, he must give up when he comes under close supervision on the closed ward. What strikes Cleckley as, quote, an important clinical feature of the disorder, and quote, exhibited by his patients is precisely the specific, these are his words, an obdurate difficulty in finding out anything at all about less superficial attitudes, or real inner purposes, or me, uh, or meanings. Tellingly, Cleckley speaks of the, in the above passage of Chester's pseudo goals. Means and normativity presumes a commitment to aims that, unlike mere desires, are regulative or normative for one's choices. As a concern to properly manage one's life, prudence is not con- confined to mere merely future desires. To focus on the future in this way um, would suggest that nothing is amiss with psychopath's relation to uh, with psychopath's relations to their actual present aims remarkably often those ongoing concerns fail to inhibit shoplifting sprees or gambling binges that imperil their liberty and livelihood or put another way psychopath's deficiencies of self-regard pertain to her present as much as to her future self so the problem is not merely that psychopaths are so to speak present aim agents. Although one cannot uh, manage the past, prudential concern is is nonetheless evinced as well in past regarding attitudes such as regret and remorse. And as Tom Nagel remarks, regret is to the past what prudence is to the future. So the absence of ends in the sense indicated by Cleckley when he calls them pseudo-goals means that the so-called egocentricity of Tom, Chester, and, their, and the like is fundamentally different from genuine self-regard. So in failing to take their end seriously, these subjects do not, after all, treat themselves as worth very much. An individual's controlling sense of the importance of how his or her life goes supplies a critical standpoint from which one might find reasons for persisting in the face of distractions, for achieving coherence of aims, for regretting how one has, has conducted oneself, and a commitment to self-correction, all of which seem to be absence on the standard profile. So just as uh, psychopaths are blind to the claims of the moral life, they have no grip on the larger ethical question of how we ought to live. Despite Socrates, that question is to them a trivial or perhaps senseless matter. Of course, not all creatures who lack this capacity or in whom it's unrealized are psychopaths, but brute animals, infants, for example. Psychopathy is a disorder of rationally reflective social beings, beings for whom it's characteristic to have a life to lead. Now, the idea that psychopaths lack normative orientation, practical normative orientation is basically the conclusion to which Cleckley is led by his extensive case studies of the phenomenon. He writes, uh, in contrast with all the various diversities of viewpoint and degrees of conviction found among ordinary people, the so-called psychopath holds no real viewpoint at all and is free of any sincere conviction in what may may be called either good or evil. He puts this conclusion in terms of an inability to experience anything as meaningful. Psychopathy consists in a disorder at deep levels of personality integration that prevents experience from becoming adequately meaningful to the psychopathic subject. So it's as though... the the, the psycho, uh, so psychopath is a kind of practical nihilist, not that he denies meaning, but that his life he has no sense of it meaning. But it's not that he or she is therefore depressed. Uh, they're, in fact, uh, remarkably uh, free of those kinds of, of, of difficulties. Um, but they don't have an aspiration to meaning either. Um, they don't have a sense that uh, uh, that is a dimension of life. Cluckley attributes this lack of meaningful experience to his subject's incapacity for true and abiding loyalty to any principle or person, he, he writes. They consequently have no practical orientation other than that provided by the impulses that present themselves for satisfaction, which provides no basis for commitment. This detachment is registered in psychopath's limited emotional repertoire. So he goes on to say... Uh, in another remarkable passage, in considering the general shallowness of affect common to all members of this series in connection with their incapacity for object love. There is temptation to wonder about the possible interdependence of these faculties. Is it possible for tragic or transforming emotion to arise in any person without that peculiar and indescribable personal commitment to another, or if not to another personality, at least to some abstraction? well outside the self, he says. And so he describes his patient, Max. Um, But he doesn't take this to be an unusual, this is, on the contrary, a typical sort of case. Max is unfamiliar with the primary facts or data about what might be called personal values, is altogether incapable of understanding such matters. It's impossible for him to take even a slight interest in the tragedy or joy or the striving of humanity is presented in serious literature or art. He's also indifferent to all these matters in life itself, beauty, ugliness, except in a very superficial sense. Big hedge there, but uh, goodness, evil, love, horror and humor have no actual meaning, no power to move him. He is furthermore lacking in the ability to see that others are moved. It's as though he were colorblind, despite his sharp intelligence to this aspect of human existence. It cannot be explained to him because there's nothing in his orbit of awareness that can bridge the gap with comparison. He can repeat the words and say glibly he understands, and there's no way for him to realize he doesn't. Now, here, Cleckley sticks his neck where uh, uh, much farther than I did originally in my common ground claim. Because... Um, the moral and prudential deficiencies we've been considering are, are deficiencies in regard to persons, uh, oneself and others, and therefore for respect and, uh, and uh, for, uh, respect and for hum, uh, uh, concern for human well-being. And and uh, this uh, absence implied a poverty of corresponding emotional and sentimental responses. Cleckley's conjecture implies that the emotional conative deprivations will extend even to aesthetic sensibilities these creatures will on this conjecture be not only deaf to the appeals of the moral law within and the claims of prudence but also unmoved by the starry skies above or the novels of dostoevsky or old growth or the the the, uh, character of old growth forests or the preservation of historic urban districts or folk music. On this account, the putative absence of psychopaths from the ranks of accomplished artists, intellectuals, scientists, or devoted preservationists is not due solely to their characteristic impulsiveness. Uh, Indeed, the explanatory connection might go the other way around. They they have no authoritative standpoint by which to monitor the impulses at the moment. If Cluckley's right, they're bereft of any sense of the point of these disciplines. Now, this claim, properly understood, might not be as far-fetched as it may seem. At any rate, it may not go significantly beyond the common ground claim as I initially stated it. It would be one thing to claim, quite implausibly, that psychopaths cannot be good at math, or physics, or tennis. Or, and another thing to say that they cannot uh, love these as disciplines or devotions. And it's the latter that's in question. Since what we call disciplines are inherently interpersonal, even when practiced in isolation from another, dedication to them brings with it a sense of participating in the values of of these enterprises that others have contributed to in some way. This is one respect in which these devotions lead disciples to, uh, to use Cleckley's language, transcend themselves, submitting to some kind of higher calling, quote unquote. Now, TM, uh, Tim Scanlon uh, makes an insightful observation that's relevant here. He observes that si- about, uh, science could also be said about art or baseball or cricket. <laughs> those who take up science as a career, Tim writes, have reason to try to be good scientists, to work hard, to choose lines of inquiry that are significant rather than those that are easiest or will get the most attention to report their results accurately in a way that will help uh, uh, be helpful to other inquirers, and to treat the results of others fairly, recognizing um, um, their merits rather than simply emphasizing their weaknesses and deficiencies. Someone who failed to see a strong reasons to do these things could be said not to understand or not to care about the value of science, and to be in it just for the sake of money or fame or the thrill of competition. Now, to the extent to which narrative and representational art, that was the end of the quote from Scanlon, to the extent to which narrative or representational art deals with questions of meaning, ethical and moral issues, or calls for sympathy with the human lot, it's clear how psychopathy can unsuit one for its appreciation. But I'm more more puzzled by some of the other aesthetic limitations that uh, Cleckley asserts take the capacity of certain natural phenomena certain music and certain music to move us to tears, the splendid, the sublime, the wondrous. It'd be remarkable if, as Cleckley suggests, these were uh, beyond the ken of psychopaths. Why should the normative deficits that we've been discussing play any part here at all? If they do, would this mean that such aesthetic experiences are in some way ethical? This is quite obscure to me. These experiences have no obvious practical bearing, and yet they do do seem to, as we normally speak of them, say something about the meaning of human life. I've not seen this issue raised outside of Cleckley's work, and it seems to be a matter that merits investigation. So, in sum, on Cleckley's account, a common ground of um, psychopaths' prudential and moral shortcomings is the incapacity as he would put it, to value anything. Whatever we're valuing is, is, entails, at a minimum, a commitment to ends as standards of self-correction. This explains the sense in which psychopaths appear to be bound within the horizons of their present inclinations. Their practical perspective, pr- perspectives are constricted to the dictates of the impulses with which they happen to find themselves. And in that sense, nothing is normative for them. Anything goes. Now the notion here I leave aside. Cleckley and turn to another recent, uh, some other recent writers. The notion of a normative standpoint or orientation, or something one stands for, is closely related to the idea of practical identity, an idea that is often invoked by commentators on on psychopathy. Um, McCord and McCord uh, see psychopaths as insecurely and continually searching. For a sense of identity, vainly. Kenneth, uh, Janet Kenneth finds it natural to say that lack of a deep sense of self explains the psychopath's moral and prudential failings very well. Um, and Cleckley himself, in a passage quoted earlier, spoke of the, the uh, failure of personality integration, so a problem, as it were, with the integrity of the self. Self. So, what's the connection here? Christine Korsgaard famously attempts to explain normativity as arising from the conditions of reflective agency via the notion of practical identity. So uh, reflection, this is a, a famous passage from sources of normativity. It's on your handout. Reflection sets us a problem no other animal has. It's the problem of the normative. For our capacity to turn our attention onto our own mental activities is also a capacity to distance ourselves from them and to call them into question. The reflective mind cannot settle for perception and desire, not just as such. It needs a reason. Otherwise, at least as long as it reflects, it cannot commit itself or go forward." End quote. The problem is solved, uh, Korsgaard thinks, by the possession of a practical identity, which she uh, defines as a description under which uh, you value yourself, under which you find your life to be worth living and your actions to be worth undertaking. And so the idea is that to value anything at all requires valuing oneself as a valuing agent. A failure of practical identity in this sense uh, would indeed uh, explain the linkage thesis not that, not that Course Guard is here talking about psychopathy. In fact, notice that the phenomenon of psychopathy creates a problem for Course account, for it shows that, quote, the capacity to turn our attention onto our mental activities, unquote, is not sufficient for the capacity to call them into question. For by, by our uh, assumptions, the psychopath uh, has the former capacity and lacks the latter. The exercise of the latter capacity already requires some sort of critical standpoint if only at the limit, the sense that it's important to forge uh, what she calls a personal uh, identity or a a conception of the good or something like that. So so psychopaths don't face uh, a problem of the normative in the form suggested here, and yet they do commit themselves and do go forward, commit themselves in the sense that they... uh, hop on the bus or uh, buy the uh, buy the tools that are necessary to uh, pull off the next burglary Um, psychopaths constantly encounter questions of what's to do which they answer by determining to do uh, this or that among the options presented by their impulses Uh, when Deaver uh, accepts the proposal to pull a job in Florida rather than to continue hanging around New York City um, he has his reasons, perhaps. He does it for the money or by his own account, just for the fun. Uh, this acceptance is an exercise of some, some kind of exercise of practical rationality, for it's the acceptance of a practical premise that to some extent structures to some extent, structures his thought about what to do next. Now it makes sense to him to buy the burglary tools, take the evening train to Miami, rather than the subway to Brooklyn, um, and so on. On the other hand, he may just lose, lose interest in that plan, in which case it no longer makes sense. Now, of course, what Kushgard means by having a reason is something that uh, goes beyond what the, the normal uh, everyday uh, sense in which uh, I was just illustrating by the case of, of Deaver. Um, She means, by having a reason, something that can be normative for one, by which she means at least corrective of one's desires as one finds them. So it can guide one to value, it can guide one as a critical standard. And that's something that Deaver, by our assumption, uh, uh, lacks. But as I've said, the capacity for reflection is not sufficient for having that. Now, Korsgaard has suggested to me in correspondence on this matter that it, that it is sufficient, the capacity for reflection, for needing reasons in this stronger sense, even though she it's not sufficient for having them. And much of psychopathic behavior she suggests in her, her remarks to me um, might be seen as a vain attempt to satisfy that need for reasons. In her own words, she's... Quote, tempted to think that psychopaths as self-conscious agents need reasons, but because they are unable to value themselves, cannot get them, end quote. We might see this need for reasons manifested, she, she suggests, in psychopaths' signature concern to dominate others as a, as a way of working up a sense of self-worth. These are Korskar's uh, words, working up a sense of self-worth that's required to make things matter to them, to give them real reasons. Uh, And this includes the uh, grandiose sense of self-worth that is on uh, Hare's checklist. Now, no doubt the presentation of a grandiose conception of self-worth is, in part, a strategy of impression management at which psychopaths sometimes excel, but Korsgaard's reflection suggests something less strategic. Admittedly, this need for normative orientation which is what uh, she has in mind, does not explain why the feudal search for a sense of self-worth takes the squalid forms that it does take, why it would take the form one who dominates rather than one who uh, ministers to the needy. Um, So it doesn't explain the particular practical identities that they might uh, uh, try try on uh, unsuccessfully so the story so far needs to be supplemented by an account of the specific limited emotional and cognitive resources available to psychopaths and here i think a part of a plausible supplement would cite psychopaths acute sensitivity to social position uh, something that em- 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 is emphasized by victoria mcgear in a recent article individuals she says with psychop- psychopathy do show some concern with the social world at least as far as that extends to getting the better of others whom they imagine to be trying to get the better of, of, of them. They're acutely uh, attuned to, to social position in a certain way. Nevertheless, um, there, there's something characteristically human, indeed, not unrelated to normal human moral agency, that explains a psychopath's quest for dominance in the social world. Be that as it may, my, my own suspicion is that psychopaths might feel something like a need for a coherent, critical standpoint. Uh, But what they feel is uh, mainly social pressure. What they need, since it would facilitate their interactions, is not to stand for something, but to at least uh, uh, appear to do so. We're subject early on not only to various substantive demands for this and that conduct, but to the demand to be somebody in particular, to be an intelligible respondent we are urged to have or get a life, a coherent and governing practical standpoint from among available and socially acceptable options. The form and content of this pressure will of course be socially variable, but the demand to occupy some social roles or others is necessarily a demand for at least uh, a bit of diachronic stability. Psychopaths are incapable of answering satisfactorily to these demands, even though I would think they must feel some social force, uh, uh, a a social force to do so to some extent. One of the few recent philosophers uh, to have explicitly taken up the linkage thesis is Jeanette Kennett, who defends in some detail a version of the foregoing common ground claim in which the absence of normativity is understood as indifference to reasons, quite generally. Psychopaths are, are amoral, sorry, are amoral, not basically because they lack empathy, but because they're a normative, according to Kennett, of which their prudential concerns, failures, are instances. Now, there's a long quote, I'll, for, the, for the sake of time, I'll, I won't read it all, but I, uh, I'll skip the long one and just um, read a shorter one. She says, the capacity for moral judgment is not separable from the general capacity for normative thought, which one can characterize as a concern with and responsiveness to reasons. And this is what some high-functioning autistic individuals possess, uh, even though they lack empathy. But psychopaths largely lack. This and, uh, the end, end quote. With Cleckley, with Kennett emphasizes the psychopath's peculiar relation to her own ends, but on her account, the problem of normativity is global, extending beyond the practical to the doxastic. So psychopaths, she says, it's not just with with respect to their their, um, aims or pseudo-goals or whatever. They're generally quite unconstrained by rational requirements of accuracy, intelligibility, and consistency. We suggest that the very notion of a normative requirement is beyond the psychopath. Now, as we've said, uh, psychopaths surely do recognize and act on reasons in, in some, some ordinary sense. So, in what sense can't they respond to reasons? Well, it's clear that what Kenneth has in mind it, by indifference to reasons is an indifference to justification. And justification, I think, is also what Korsgaard thinks is not delivered by perception and desire just as such. Acting on reasons in this stronger sense takes an evaluative standpoint from which agents can subject the content of their desires uh, to critical scrutiny and find them wanting. So in this way, psychopaths lack normative agency and their rational, rational agency is, 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 is truncated. Well I have uh, more to say, but let me just con- conclude um, with, two, with two points of clarification. Um, After this, as I said, rather eclectic and and, uh, speculative discussion, I I want to emphasize I don't construe the common ground conjectures holding that the capacities for potential and interpersonal concern or moral concern are themselves essentially linked. I don't take it to imply that. Rather, it explains the apparent correlation of these deficiencies in psychopaths in terms of a common cause, namely an incapacity for evaluative self-scrutiny. For all that uh, the common ground thesis asserts, it's p- perfectly possible for someone to have robust prudential, prudential concern without a shred of human sympathy or respect. But that sort of character, maybe the textbook amoralist who's characterized by agential partiality and but temporal impartiality, would not, on the proposed account, have the disorder of psychopathy, for disorders are individuated by their etiologies. The second point of clarification is this. i found it illuminating uh, to understand psychopathic disorder as a failure of a certain kind of practical identity in the the sense of an absence of the sense of an importance of having a life. By this way of speaking, I hasten to add that I by no means intend to suggest that non-psychopathic adult human beings possess or ideally should possess anything like a plan or a script for a complete lifespan. Uh, we may I, so I may you may be worried that I'm taking, uh, uh, too, too, uh, making too strong claims about the um, importance of non and non-pathological lives of of a diachronic agency or something like that um, now i myself um think that uh, it's a substantive question how how much uh, how planful a life should be how diachronic it should be um um and, i mean it's a substantive ethical question uh, depending on uh, arguments about what the good life requires but i Um, What I am committing uh, uh, myself to is the idea that we need enough diachronicity uh, for it makes sense to have an evaluative outlook and and to govern uh, one's life as one finds it Uh, by that. uh, I'm not sure whether this uh, conflicts with... uh, the claims of um, some people to um, episodic ethics, uh, Galen Strassen and other people. I don't, I don't think it conflicts with any reasonable substantive claims about this, but uh, I'll come, stop there.